When the dates for this preaching series were sent out and sorted and organised, I had no idea that this was going to be Adam and Lydia's, and, uh, Lydia's last week. Um, it's kind of a, a happy coincidence in that way. Um, Lizzie helped me get my job and uh, I lead a team with her at the minute and we're like a dream team of super passes and making all the kids happy, that's good. Um, me and Adam have uh, been in two different churches together. I don't intend to make it three. Have a wonderful time in Sittenborn and I'll be praying for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I like the heading of the passage today. I'm a fan of it. I know that headings in, in Bibles aren't scriptural per se. They were added by the translators later in order to break the passages up and make them easier to translate and digest. Sometimes they're simple and descriptive. Sometimes they're surprisingly deep when you consider the passage. Today's passage starts in 1 John 5 verse 13. And as we finish our current preaching series on 1 John, it feels particularly apt and encouraging especially tying in with members of our church family moving on today over the past few weeks. The heading for today's passage is Concluding Affirmations. This passage is declaring the truth. It's confirming, asserting, guaranteeing, professing, ratifying, pronouncing and testifying. I love the thesaurus. And what is this conclusion affirming? Only a few important truths combined with some very encouraging promises. So let's start by reading the passage. Can you turn to 1 John 5, verse 13 to 21? It is up there. Nice. Concluding affirmations. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything to his, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God an eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So we've heard a lot of wisdom from John over these last few weeks, and there's plenty more here for us today. What really hit me when preparing for this sermon is something that John Stott wrote in his book, The Letters of John. Being in education myself and currently studying at college, I'm very aware of the importance of correctly referencing what you've read. So I'm going to quote John Stott as a reference, rather than just pretending it's my own thoughts. John Stott says, The letter was written that you may know that you have eternal life. The gospel was written for unbelievers, that they may read the testimony of God to his son, believe in him to whom the testimony pointed, 
and thus receive life through faith. This letter, on the other hand, was written for believers. John's desire for them is not that they may believe and receive, but that having believed, they may know that they have received and therefore continue to have, present, eternal life. This letter is personal. This letter is where John pulls the church to the side, puts his arm around its shoulders and says, so you've accepted Jesus and you've got eternal life, but it doesn't stop there. There's more for you to know and understand. There's just something about understanding the scriptures being written chronologically, that the believers have been reading the gospels for a while before receiving this letter that really immerses my thinking. The believers in the early church didn't have the whole Bible given to them in one chunk. We're here today in 2018 at a time where the Bible is the Bible, where using the five guiding principles, the Council of Carthage established New Testament canon in 397 AD. We've gone through hundreds of years of church history, translations, the printing press, the Reformation, and so on. And we can, through the power of a bookshop or an app, read one of many different biblical translations, whether that's the NIV, the New Living Translation, the King James, the Message, you can read the Bible in Klingon, or even Elvish. That's the fictional point here, guys, not the dead singer with the quiff. Elvish. It's amazing. I read it, that's very confusing. But as we read this letter, and indeed every book of the Bible, we're reading content written by those as biblical history and early church history was happening. We can read everything in context with other books of the Bible. It's common for people who are preaching to be able to ping around to different chapters, books and testaments to bring together God's promises or to explain points for a sermon. However, what we're reading now was being read then by those who have had to learn, study and live without certain parts of scripture. These letters, receiving these letters is amazing. To receive these new teachings and new letters to that which were available before, increasing their understanding and developing their doctrine must have been incredible. So when a letter like 1 John refers back to the gospel and what they've heard and studied, and then speaks to them more personally as those who have read those gospels and accepted Jesus as saviour, for me that feels really intense and special thinking about it in that way. Although I haven't been keeping up so well recently, for the last few years, the BBC have been showing most of the Top of the Pops episodes from 1980 onwards. I don't know if anyone watches uh, BBC Four late in the evening or iPlayer, but it's there. I think now that up to about 1986, uh, yeah, they start from 1980, 86. It's been a rocky journey, I must admit, fraught with musical danger, and it's done a good job of reprogramming my thinking on what was popular and successful at the time. After all, nowadays, as with anything uh, cultural, we get an edited version of events, seen through sort of increasingly ridiculous rose-coloured nostalgia glasses. Even Elton John would be embarrassed to wear these glasses. <laughs> so, despite being born in 1980 myself, I know it's hard to believe, a mix of my youth, nostalgia, sketchy memories and false memories means that for the first time I'm seeing songs I know now in their natural setting. I also remember my mum telling me 
that she totally missed the 80s anyway due to having two small boys for the whole of it. So this would be an experience watching it for you, but I didn't even know that song existed. Anyway, seeing songs I know and either love, hate, or relatively dispassionate towards, within that chronological landscape of time, is revelatory, actually. When, um, I'm doing some musical quotes, so I apologise. When Susie and the Banshees step onto the stage on top of the pops to perform Happy House in 1980, watching it there blew my mind as to how utterly different it was to anything that had been on that show for that whole year. Utterly different. Never seen it that way. I've always known it. Seeing uh, New Order's Blue Monday perform live, and it's an electro song, perform live on the 1984 episode, went from me thinking of it as just being a total iconic tune, but seeing it as a, bri a brave, seismic musical event at the time. Totally different. Depeche Mode's New Life in June 81 blew me away with how out there it was. But again, totally different. And then, I knew of Echo and the Bunny Men, but never particularly loved them. But then, saw a performance of The Cutter in 83, just leapt out at me. So different. I got a whole new like, interest in that band from where they were in that musical soundscape. Watching a storyline of music flow forward as different bands and genres rose and fell, ska, late disco, 50s revival, soul, early electro, post-punk, the new romantics, then new wave, then the shoulder-padded shoulder power ballads at the minute it is. It's tough, but I'm working my way through. Yuppie pop. And throughout it all, the constant that was shaking Stevens <laughs> has given me so much more appreciation for some of that work, except shaking Stevens. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I've, I've told you I had like, more weeks in the chart in the 80s than like, any other artist. Incredible. Longevity. It may sound ridiculous, but it's taken me until now to read the Bible in that context. Yes, I've understood how prophecy promises forward and it fulfills back across hundreds or thousands of years. I've looked at how passages that we may find difficult with regards to laws or society sitting within the context of the time that they were written and who they were written to. But I've never really considered how believers who were alive during all those years that the books of the Bible were being written used what they had and then incorporated the new wisdom and teaching into that. This final passage of 1 John we're looking at today isn't always easygoing, but these are personal, precious words to those who have accepted Jesus Christ. It's like getting a new series of your favourite show on Netflix, but like dialed up to 100. You know, we get that previously in the Gospel, according to John, and now this. So today, I want to pull out a few points from this passage. Truths, affirmations, declarations for those who believe. So firstly, my first point today is, it's a good one. We can be confident that God hears our prayers and answers them. I told you it was a good point, right? That's a good point. We can be confident that God hears our prayers and answers them. So I'm going to read from verse 14 to 15 again. They state... This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 
These two verses are fantastic. And they build on what John wrote in his gospel in chapter 15, verse 16, where Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is a real encouragement for the early church and should be for us too. It's a reminder of what Jesus professed in the Gospels. We have a Father who is all-powerful, who hears us and our prayers, and he provides for us. We can have boldness in our prayers and in coming to him to ask. As my daughters come to me or Anna to ask for things, so we can go to God. Now, unsurprisingly, I don't always give my girls everything they want. If I did, I'd imagine by now we'd have had countless trips to dentists, doctors, law courts and Jeremy Kyle. However, as a loving father, I will answer their requests for what they want from a position of parental experience and personal experience. Of course Lena can have a glass of fruit juice during the day. Of course she can. But if she asks at bedtime after brushing her teeth, then we'll go for water instead. Maybe she wants a few sweets. If it's the weekend, she can have a few early in the day, sure. But there's no way I'm giving her sweets at six in the evening unless I want them jumping, spinning and flossing, and I can't do it very well, at 9.30 still at night when they should be in sleep. Can we afford for Lena to go to a club each week? Yeah, we can. Do we let her eat everything she wants? Or just buy her everything she asks for? No. Do we deny her these things because we're mean and unloving? Of course not. However, that doesn't diminish Lena's faith in us to provide for her what she needs to survive, grow, develop, thrive, and feel secure and loved. We should approach God with reverence, but with an openness and a boldness to ask requests of a loving Father, a Father who knows our needs, our hopes, and our fears. I think it can be tough when we're praying and we're not getting answers or seeing our prayers answered at all. I've, heard, I've had that numerous times over the years. I'm sure we all have. However, as David Jackman says in the message of John's letters, he says, Our praying is never on a surer foundation than when it is grounded in Scripture, for here God's will is revealed. So when today, when we've, when we've been praying for Adam, Lizzie and Lydia, we're not praying for them, and I'm, I didn't hear anyone pray it, for two all-inclusive family holidays each year to Disneyland. That's as much as you'd love it. It's not what we're going to pray for. <laughs> we're not praying for a pony or a national lottery win. Adam's upset as well now. We're not praying for these things, but we're praying in confidence for God's will in their life. We're praying for them as they go and make disciples in another town. We're praying for provision of what they need as Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. If we're praying God's will over them, then we can rest assured that he is listening and will provide. If we're praying for them to find a priceless lost copy of the Magna Carta buried under a tree in their garden, maybe not so much. This holds true to all of us. In our personal prayer lives and when praying for others, we are not trying to bargain with God or coerce him into doing what we want. Rather, we're sitting down with our Father and we're asking him for what we need. In the same way as Lena will happily come and ask me without any fear, but submitting to the fact that I'll be saying yes to 8pm water and no to 8pm sweets. 
David Jackman sums it up well when he says, for prayer is not an attempt to get God to see things my way and extract from him what I've decided I want or need. Prayer is submitting my will to him. So that's point one. Point two. Secondly, we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who aren't saved. So we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who aren't saved. Now on to verses 16 and 17, which it turns out, from what I've read into them, have proved more than a little tricky to interpret down the years. So verse 16 and 17 say this. If you see any brother or sister commit to a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Firstly, I'm not going to pretend that I'm some great scholar. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm not. Stop laughing at the back. It's so rude. <laughs> so true, it's so true. Um, even if I was, to this day, the great scholars have never all agreed on what the sin that leads to death is. This is not something I'm focusing on today, as you probably all want to get home before 10 tonight, and I wouldn't do it justice anyway. Just to put it in the setting of the scripture today, though, from what I've remembered over the years and from what I looked up this week, I'm quickly going to say a few other things so that we can move on from there. It's one of a number of things that sin leading to death. Least likely is a specific sin, such as the arbitrarily classified seven deadly ones. Another possibility is, I can never say this, apostasy. Apostasy? Apostasy. Apostasy, thank you. I practiced that a lot last night. Um, which is a total denial of Christ and renunciation of the faith. This then leads us into one of those fascinating, but not in the next 15 minutes this morning kind of discussions of once saved, always saved, and can someone who commits such a sin have been a Christian in the first place? That's not for today. Another possibility is an Old Testament concept of sinning defiantly. That's fully conscious sinning for the sake of sinning in order to deny the Lord. Wowza. The final possibility that is probably the most accepted is that of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Jesus in Mark 3.29 states, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So I just wanted to quickly cover that bit. We should be praying for each other. I'm sure we can all agree we should be praying for each other, which is something we should all be doing anyway. Whether it's your regular prayer list at home, a specific request for personal prayer time, to one-to-one -one prayer, groups, or more corporately. We should be praying for each other, for provision, for healing, speaking in specific situations, and so on. We should also be on hand, though, for those needing prayer for sin in their lives. This is much less likely to be, done, to be a case of someone being called to the front of the church while everyone gathers around them to pray loudly about an ongoing sin in their life. God hates sin, and it does need to be dealt with for a Christian to be able to enjoy God's presence fully. As often, sin leads to a backing away, a hiding, or a sense of shame before God. It can be embarrassing and hurtful. However, God is also a loving Father who cares for us and desires for us to be close to him 
and walking with him. Therefore, it's important to build friendships and an openness with others in the church. In your small groups and in your friendship groups and so on. Admitting sins, mistakes and errors is a tough thing. But being able to find someone to pray with you and spend time with you can ultimately only strengthen you, the church and your walk with God. Again, this ties back to asking for something that's God's will. He wants what's best for us. And he knows our feelings better than we know them ourselves. He knew us in the womb. He loves us and he loves the church. As it says in 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. Sometimes we can see that as a bigger picture response to people being saved and becoming Christians. But it's important to know that even when we're a Christian, confessing our sins to God will mean he forgives them. It's like the way I forgive Lena when she does something naughty and later apologises. She needs to understand that what she did is wrong and apologise for it. But I'm longing for her to apologise because even though there may be some punishment required for it, what I most want to do is hug her, accept that apology and move on from there. All the while she's refusing to accept fault or apologise, even if she knows she's done wrong, there's a tension and frustration from her. This passage also ties into being forward about being willing to pray for those in the church who aren't yet saved and want to confess their sins and become Christians. Going back to John Stott, he says that the the use of brother, the word brother, naturally ties in with other passages in the Bible, which would translate it to being more like a neighbour, a nominal Christian or a churchgoer who isn't saved. With John speaking to believers through this letter, this would also make sense. To be honest, praying for sin in the lives of Christian and Christians and praying for neighbours and non-Christians to be saved both seem to be a good idea and scriptural. We must make sure we're available to speak to those who want to know more about Jesus and about becoming a Christian. We must provide opportunity for that and support for people to become Christian and when starting their Christian life. Let's face it, continuing their Christian life, we all need support from time to time. Christianity is not a secret society where you must be put forward for membership by the third cousin of a mother's member's sister or something, or pay £10,000 to the chairman and clean his car for a month. You don't have to be a certain age or ethnicity, be born in the right postcode, or have a minimum amount of money in your bank account. You just need to recognise you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus, want to change and to live in him, and apologise for that sin. It can be tough to accept these things. It can be tough accepting, admitting sin, even to ourselves. But we need to make church a place where we look to God and provide support and put time aside to pray individually and corporately for ourselves and for each other. If we pray according to God's will, then we will receive. God forgives sin. God saves. God loves. My final point today is that thirdly, we are in Christ and we're safe in him. We are in Christ and we're safe in him. This third and final point, I want to feel like a combination of a couple of things. Especially with it raining outside like this. If anyone can picture it back from the day, there was an advert for like soup that was like a hug in a mug or something. Where someone is raining outside 
someone sits down with a warm mug of soup and they get a hug around the neck and shoulders by a pair of brightly coloured fuzzy arms. People recognise, oh, oh, it's that feeling. We all know it. it's been horrible outside. Sit down, hot drink, something. Oh, it's that feeling. I want to feel a combination of that. And um, secondly, there's a trope from fantasy or historical warry films like Lord of the Rings or Braveheart, something like that, where, I'm sure we've all seen it once at least, where there's a figure or a small cluster of figures can be seen standing on a hill and opposing forces get all cocky and overconfident. Ah, look at them. And then it's revealed by the camera going up or by people walking forwards that the figure has a mighty army with them, actually. They're not alone, even if they looked it. They've got all the power with them. I'm sure we've seen the film like that. Now, I want you in your mind to combine those and magnify them up a few times. We're going to go to verse 18 to 20, where it says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that they that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the Bible doesn't tend to sugarcoat things as you read through. It doesn't sort of keep things a bit hidden, it does tend to say it as it is. Jesus never said that following him would be easy. In fact, in Matthew 5 verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus again says in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Paul writes, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's no different in this passage. John writes that the whole world is in the grip of the evil one. That's something that would have been evident in the early church then, and something we can definitely see now. We've had bombs, attacks and shootings in America over the last couple of days. We've got horrific famine in Yemen. We've got our own elderly, disabled and sick being left unsupported and without care. All the mass media has done for us is make it even easier to see how many terrible things are happening around the world. It's almost a joke for those of you that watch local news, that local news will end with a little uplifting story. A little, and finally, you know, a story about a dancing kitten in Folkestone or a blind squirrel that's been nursed back to health and is appearing in the West End of Lion King. You know, a happy little fluff piece, inconsequential. Because everything else in the news has been tragedy, disaster, crime and sadness. But we've got to think, and finally, we live in a fallen world full of sin, selfishness, greed and hate. But we are children of God. We are in him. Christ keeps us safe where the evil one cannot harm us. Only through Christ can we know God and overcome sin. We do not just know God, which would be amazing in itself, but we are now in him. We are his sons and daughters adopted into his kingdom. We are not citizens of this world anymore, this world caught in the grip of evil. Sure, we live here, and we will have our share of personal sufferings, family and friendship sufferings. We'll have societal suffering, 
We'll have global sufferings. We will be hated and persecuted by the world because of our faith. But God is for us. As it says in Romans 8 verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Our future is secure. Even death itself has lost its hold over us after Jesus defeated it on the cross. So when we stand, we stand in the power of God. A God who loves us as a father and who knows what's best for us. A God who listens to us, who hears our prayers and he answers. A God who we're able to draw close to, learn his heart and what that means for us and our priorities. We can come before God with confidence to pray our best prayers for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters in the church, for our friends and our neighbours alike. God is not sleeping. We don't have to wake him up with expensive or convoluted ceremonies. God is all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do according to his will. Today we've been able to pray for Adam, Lizzie and Lydia. We've prayed for the Sittingbourne Church. We pray for Swale, for ourselves, here in Faversham, in that knowledge. We're not just shouting into the wind and hoping it ends up somewhere. Like those balloons you let off and, you know, who gets the furthest? And then it kills some birds or something, gets caught in a tree. That is not. We have an open line to our Father, Almighty God. We shouldn't be afraid to pray for forgiveness. Either for those looking to pray that prayer for the first time, in order to be saved and become a Christian... Or for when we realise and acknowledge sinful behaviours or instances in our own life. We should foster an environment in church and our friendships where this is something we feel able to do with love, with honesty and with wisdom. We pray, support and fellowship together in the presence of the almighty God.